In the killing house at Bradbury Lines, Pete Winner, snapper, was patching up the target he'd just shot full of holes when the pages started bleeping. He looked down. Ops messages featured a sequence of four digits. To his surprise, Snapper saw the number 9999 on his pager. Slapping some more glue on the ferocious cardboard Carlos the Jackal target, he shouted over to the other three men in his team. It's the live op code, and I bet it's another lemon. Only the year before, the entire duty SP team had scrambled to Stansted Airport when an overexcited Irish air traffic controller triggered a full-scale alert in the belief that Ugandan dictator Idi Amin was about to land his personal jet in the UK without permission and without warning. And without anyone having the slightest idea what the brutal dictator might be planning to do. The alarm had turned out to be entirely false. Snapper had no expectation that this latest call to arms would prove any less Mickey Mouse. Still, a call-out was better than schlepping off on another routine exercise where the good guys win in the end. Lance Corporal Rusty Furmin was at home drinking coffee and leafing through the morning newspaper. Unmarried, Furmin lived within 500 metres of the camp's main gate. When his pager went off, he looked down, swallowed the last of the coffee and set out at a quick walk. Whatever was going on, he'd be one of the first to find out. During his three years with the SAS, Furmin had already seen his share of action. It might be that he was about to see some more. Lance Corporal John McAleese had just enjoyed a leisurely full English breakfast of best Herefordshire bacon, and as far as he was concerned it was the best in the world, easy over fried eggs and grilled tomato, then he'd played silly games with his six-month-old son, Paul, his firstborn child, and the apple of his fatherly eye. McAleese smiled to himself. The little plastic frog he'd bought earlier in town was a big hit. When he pulled the string that moved its arms and legs, his baby son gurgled and shrieked with delight. As he strolled in towards camp, he thought it was a bit of a shame the exercise was probably going to stretch right through the May bank holiday weekend. He might be in the SAS, but when he was away from home, he missed the boy. And just as he was thinking that, his bleeper went off. McAleese stopped and glanced down. Seeing the 9999 code for a live operation, he shook the device to see if it had displayed the message in error. It hadn't. Less than one minute later, the same operational call-out code flashed into view again. His next reaction was a moment of elation. You trained and trained and nothing happened. Some blokes trained their whole careers and never fired a shot in anger. McAleese had fired plenty in his time. Several covert tours of Northern Ireland had seen to that. But there was nothing like the chance to hone your fighting skills in a real battle. Bloody lucky, he thought, that B Squadron had just taken over SP team duty from D Squadron. In those rare cases where 22 SAS regiments' extra firepower and expertise were needed as a military aid to the civil power, it usually came in the shape of the SP team, the cutting-edge, immediate-response anti-terrorist unit responsible for combating armed terrorist attacks on the British mainland. Each of the regiment's four fighting sabre squadrons, A, B, D and G, rotated six-month stints of SP duty, with one team on 30-minute standby to move, the other at three hours' notice. But when all the bleepers sounded at the same time, it was a case of get as many team members in as quickly as you can. At the time of the call-out, B Squadron had some men away on training courses in the UK, 
Other SP team members were abroad training foreign nationals. So when the call came, B Squadron was slightly below the complement it needed for a full SP team. With several senior corporals and sergeants deployed in the Middle East, Blue Team was most affected. Unlike Doctor Who, the regiment did not have a TARDIS at its disposal. To bring B Squadron up to strength, extra snipers from A and D Squadron would be attached for the duration of the operation. With a new spring in his step, Machalis picked up the pace and headed for the camp's main gates. By the time he reached them, he was moving at a dog trot. The second he got into camp, Machalis knew the call-out was for real. The whole place was buzzing, on fire with a new purpose. It was in the body language of everyone he saw. He could see it gleaming in their eyes. As he drew near the Palidrine Club, as some wag had named the Naffy Canteen after the bitter anti-malarial medicine the coffee resembled, he bumped into Snapper. All right, mate, Machalis nodded down at his pager. There's a live op. Looks like it, Snapper said. They want us in the hangar now for briefing. They set off at a brisk pace. When they reached the big hangar in the centre of the camp, the men of both red and blue teams were pouring in through the doors. Confident the information would be passed on to any latecomers, B Squadron's OC, Major Hector Gullen, started the briefing. Morning, gentlemen. The intelligence we have so far is very sketchy, but I can confirm we're looking at a live op. It appears that an unknown number of men, most likely of Iraqi origin, have stormed the Iranian embassy in central London at approximately 11.30 hours. They're armed. Shots were fired as they made entry. Early estimates suggest they have taken everyone inside the building hostage, but the exact number of hostages is as yet unknown. We do know that one of the hostages is a diplomatic protection group officer, Police Constable Trevor Locke. We also know that Locke is, or was, armed with a thirty-eight Smith & Wesson revolver. Do not repeat this information for the present. There are no reports so far of any casualties. We have no idea who is behind this attack or what they want. Our orders are to move up to Regent's Park Barracks and prepare for an immediate action. In the meantime, get on with checking and packing your kit. I will keep everyone up to speed as more information comes in. Any questions? There were none. You could tell by the pin-drop silence that everyone was raring to go. Like John McAleese, they felt they trained and they trained, but you could only sharpen a knife so much. What they wanted was to use the edge, and for that you had to be lucky. Today it looked as if they might be lucky.